Well, if there's one constant about being a human being, is that life is never constant. We uh, just had our first doctor's appointment for our daughter Samara. She's two weeks old, and in two weeks since the day she was born, she's already grown a half an inch. That's crazy. Her body is already different in two weeks than it was when she was born. And whether our bodies are growing taller or broader, or stronger or flabbier for some of us, we're always in a state of flux, a state of movement. And of course, it doesn't just apply to our bodies. Um, Everything changes. We pass through life stages, infancy, and the explorations of being a toddler, and childhood, the awkward years of adolescence. Glad those are over. And as we pass into adulthood, we, we try and figure out what we're made of and who we are in the world. We may experience formal education, on-the-job training. Some get married, some don't. Some have kids, some don't. But by the time middle age comes, life generally doesn't look like we thought it was going to look like when we were 20. And then by the time we hit 50 or 60 or so, I'm told, uh, many find themselves asking, what's really important in life? How do I want to be remembered? How can I pass on what I've learned? Does anyone want to hear what I've learned? Life is never constant, which is probably why in literature, in psychology, in film, and even theology, the metaphor of the journey is so common, so popular. Some of the best stories out there are about journeys, the, the stories that transcend generations, that transcend cultures and time periods. One of the oldest existing written stories in the world is the Sumerian text, the Epic of Gilgamesh, in which Enkidu travels on a journey to the underworld. Centuries later, of course, we have Homer and the Odyssey in which Odysseus travels home over the long journey back from the battle in Troy. And centuries later in Europe, we have Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. And of course, two epic tales that maybe you and I are more familiar with would be Tolkien's The Hobbit or his Lord of the Rings. These epic stories of adventure involve travel, changes of scenery, and trials to be overcome. But traveling and adventures aren't the point of any of these stories. In fact, the travel, the journey, and the adventures are all merely the context for the true adventure, the adventure of self-discovery made by the main characters. The trials and adventures test the worth of the characters. And it's through the dangers and perils that the main characters actually find out what they're really made of and what their friends are made of. And in biblical stories, there's one other element to these journeys. We find out what God is made of. This evening we're going to explore the text that we just heard wonderfully read. Thank you, Jeff and Natalie. It's the second half of Genesis 24. But first, let me give a brief recap from the first half of Genesis 24 in case you missed last week. In uh, the beginning of this chapter, Abraham, the great patriarch, is near death. He has one son with his wife Sarah who died back in chapter 23. And so the promise to Abraham of becoming a nation of multitudes is in peril. If Abraham goes and Isaac doesn't have a wife and children, the line dies with him. Now, as we see in this story, Abraham's faith has matured. In his earlier years, I think Abraham would have seen a problem like this and just found Isaac any old wife. But 
now that he's seen God's faithfulness and he's learned to trust God, he doesn't concoct a solution to his problem. In fact, he sends his servant over 500 miles away to where his relatives live in Nahor to find Isaac a wife. Abraham's unnamed servant trusts God to provide, and when he arrives at a well outside Nahor, he prays that God would show him which woman he's supposed to choose. Specifically, if a woman not only offers him a drink, but also offers to water his ten camels. Now, of course, as we discussed last week, watering 10 camels who can each drink 20 to 25 gallons is so far above and beyond the normal courtesy of the day, it would almost have to be an act of divine generosity arranged by God. The the servant prays this prayer, and to me, the most powerful part of the servant's prayer is that God would cause his journey to succeed. And to the servant, success for his journey means success for Abraham's mission. And what that reminds me of and and tells us is that this servant is so loyal, so devoted to his master, that his success is wrapped up in his master's success. And I asked a question of us last week. What would it look like if success for you and I meant whatever brings Jesus the most glory? How would that change the way we see life? Now at the end of last week's section, we meet this beautiful young girl named Rebecca at the well. And of course, she not only offers Abraham's servant a drink, but she offers to water his camels too. You see God showing him, oh, this is exactly what you prayed for. And she runs home and prepares her home to receive this stranger, this visitor. Rebecca is a model of hospitality. Notice the vigor in her actions. She takes initiative, she offers above and beyond what's expected, and she runs. In fact, her, her running home to tell her family is a lot like another story we read just a few weeks ago. Well, actually, last year. <laughs> but in the, in, in the series, it's uh, Genesis 18. It's the one where Abraham is at his tent, and the three visitors from heaven come. And what does Abraham do? He runs out to them. He tells his wife, prepare the fattened calf, make bread. We're going to show hospitality to these folks. And his hospitality is contrasted with the inhospitality of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, here in our story, Rebecca is the benchmark of hospitality, and that's contrasted with her brother Laban. The narrator tells us that Rebecca had run home to tell her brother Laban about these things. Well, we don't really know what these things are, but you can guess she told Laban about her encounter with this servant. But when Laban runs out to the well to meet this servant... It says he noticed the ring in her nose, which was solid gold, and the bracelets on her wrists that the servant had given her, and the camels, because camels were worth a lot of money in those days. In fact, it was very rare to have domesticated camels in the time of Abraham. So, she, so Laban perceives then with his eyes that this dude is rich. And he's interested, his master is interested in in Laban's sister, which means he might get some of that money. And so only when he sees the gold and the camels does he then say, 
Blessed are you of the Lord. Come on over to my house. I've got fodder for your camels and we'll get a big meal going on. So they get home and they put food before Abraham's servant and his men. Now, he's traveled over 500 miles over rocky, treacherous terrain. He's probably eaten dried food, skimped on water. You know, probably hasn't had a great home-cooked meal in a long time. So here's all this good-smelling food. And in the Middle East, even today, uh, hospitality rules say that you should always put out more food than a person could possibly eat. Okay, so there's just a spread. And the servant, so devoted to his master, so loyal, says, Before I take a bite of this food, I want to tell you about my business. And so Laban says, Go ahead, speak to me about what it is you're here for. He tells Laban and his family that he's here by God's providence, that God has definitely directed me to your sister, Rebecca. And in hearing the whole story, Laban and his dad, Bethuel, who is also Rebekah's dad, um, say that the servant may take Rebekah to be the wife of Isaac. Now, there's some really weird family dynamics going on here, and I'd love to talk to you more about this later, but let's point a few of these out. First off, we hardly hear anything about this guy, Bethuel. In a patriarchal society, like, why isn't the dad the main player, but here, like, Laban takes the lead? In fact, Laban takes such a lead role for the family, you might assume that Bethuel is dead. Yet, here he is saying, you can take uh, my daughter to be Isaac's wife. The next morning, the servant wants to take Rebekah back to Isaac, and it's Laban, and not Bethuel, but Rebekah's mother, who get in the way and try and stall their delay, or delay their leaving home. Now, we don't really know what's going on here with Bethuel. Uh, maybe he's just too old and weak to be really involved in the haggling. Or maybe Laban and his mother are sort of domineering. You know, just because you have certain cultural expectations like, oh, it's a patriarchal society, it must mean all the men just run everything. Come on, man, you know in your household, like, who wears the pants and who doesn't? And sometimes things don't go to custom. So maybe here, Rebecca's mom just wears the pants in the family. And by the way, in a few weeks, we're going to be looking at Jacob and, oh man, and Rebecca, she wears the pants in the family. Uh, Isaac is kind of passive, but we'll get to that later. This is good stuff. But anyway, so we don't really know what's going on. It's all conjecture, really. So let's just leave it at that. Just say it's a weird family dynamic. But what we do know is that Laban is going to come back in the story in a few chapters. And when Isaac and Rebekah have sons, one of them is going to want to marry Laban's daughter. And boy, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty there. But you know what's so cool? By the way, just an aside is that this, is, this foreshadows Laban's character. This little tidbit where he's interested in the gold and the camels and the wealth more than hospitality. It foreshadows what he's going to be like with Jacob. And I just want to say, what's so cool to me about Scripture is that it's true, it's inspired, that's why we're preaching on it. But at the same time, you guys, it's really great literature. And I just want you to get, I want you to be proud of that. Like, this is some of the jewel of, of all ancient literature right here in Genesis. And it's awesome that, you know, God just doesn't give us a, a bullet point of this is who I am and this is how you ought to be. But he gives us these wonderful narratives. So we see some foreshadowing here and great literature as, as well as God's word. Back to the story. 
So Laban and his mother try and delay Rebekah's departure. But the servant lobbies to leave immediately. Say, so don't delay me, man. I mean, I've been on this journey. I've got a long way go to go back. Let us leave. And so Laban asks a question on which the whole outcome of this story will turn. He turns to his sister, Rebekah, and says, Will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? Now, this question by Laban betrays his greed and his unethical heart. Here's why. For one reason, just the day before, he already told the servant that Rebekah could go. And he, could, he already gave her away. And here now he's saying, do you want to go with this man? The second reason and the most important reason why this is a messed up question is because in that culture, she only had one answer. No. I will not go until the head of my household says I can go. And, you know, it's kind of like asking a mother, do you love your child? I mean, it's like a loaded question. Of course she loves her child, right? It's just a ridiculous question, which is why Rebecca's answer is so amazing. You see, with all great epic adventures, someone has to do something outside the box, out of the ordinary, something risky. And the key to this whole passage, I believe, is summed up in Rebecca's words, I will go. I wish I could see Laban's face when she said that. You're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to submit. She says, I will go. Such a, a simple thing to say, but possibly, possibly, I haven't thought this through really well. But possibly one of the most powerful things a person of faith can say. I will go. First of all, in the context of the story, I want you to think of how similar Rebecca's response is to Abraham's response. God calls him to leave his family from Ur of the Chaldeans. And he goes, he leaves everything behind to follow God. And here Rebecca is showing her quality as someone who's going to be a matriarch in this whole rescue mission of God. That she's willing to risk to leave all of that behind and follow uh, uh, this man of faith into the unknown. Second, think of all that saying, I will go, really means. Saying, I will go, also means I must leave. I must leave family. I must leave security. I must leave friends. I must leave place. And what that entails is, I kind of know how life works here. I know my place in society. But she's going off into the unknown, leaving all of that behind. And with it, really, her identity. Saying, I will go, means stepping out into the unknown. What will this road be like? I mean, 500 miles on donkey or camel, that's a long way. There's no highways. There's no 7-Eleven. There's no rest stops. And you're traveling with these grubby men that you've never seen before, you've never met before. That's crazy. Will she even make the 500-mile journey? And what will Isaac be like? Will she grow to love him? What's the land like where she's going? And what's this God like that they serve? You know, back in Nahor, the Haran area, they... They were into the moon cult. In fact, Laban, his name means white, which is a metonym for the moon in like other parts of the Bible. So this family is tied up in this pagan cult. 
And, and, and she's going to follow this new God that Abraham's family has. And just an aside, I wonder if the servant's quality about him didn't reveal a little bit to Rebecca about what God is like. See, before Rebecca knew God's name or read any kind of sacred text about God or sacrificed at one of God's altars, she saw the quality of one of his servants. And I think the old saying is true. You know, some, sometimes the first Bible that a person reads is you. Sometimes the first Bible, or the first encounter with Jesus or with God a person has is with you. And I wonder what kind of text, what kind of impression they're reading when they interact with us. Now, this story happened a long time ago. Completely weird language and culture. It's so far removed from our current day situation that it's hard sometimes, I think, to see the relevance. Like if you're just reading the story by yourself, isn't it kind of like, I don't know what to do with this. But consider afresh this question. Will you go with this man? And the answer, I will go. Doesn't that question sound a bit familiar? Isn't the answer one that many of you have said at one point in your life? You know, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you've heard the question, will you go with this man? The gospel accounts of Jesus' life are full of stories where Jesus is calling people to follow him. And just as Rebecca has chosen between honoring her family and going with the man, so Jesus says in Luke's gospel, you... If if it comes between family and me, you've got to choose me. That's a tough sell, especially in an ancient Near Eastern culture, but it's still tough today. Or maybe uh, it might be more contextual to say you've got to choose between your friendship clan and following Jesus. Like if those two are in opposition, Jesus says, follow me. When faced with the call to follow the God-man, Jesus, have you replied? With Rebecca's words, I will go. Now, as mentioned before, most people love stories about epics and adventures and journeys. But we often forget that before a story can be written about a hobbit, about a famous warrior, about any kind of epic traveler, that person first has to step a foot out the door and say, I will go. Like, a lot of times we forget that. Like, there's no story if the character doesn't first say, I will go, one foot in front of the other. Following Jesus is an amazing adventure, and it looks differently for every single one of us. But it's never static, and it's always asking us the question, will you follow this man? Now, one of the things I absolutely love about being a pastor is getting to talk to you and other people and hear your stories. And there's so many of you I could ask for an example to share to illustrate this following God. But I've asked Bethany Iblings to come and share with us a little bit. I'm actually going to interview her uh, briefly. So, Bethany, why don't you come on up? Bethany has uh, an amazing story of going. And uh, most of you know that... Bethany just returned from a month in Egypt 
where she was visiting teams with the organization called uh, Frontiers International. The purpose of that trip was to get to know the, these five different teams, right? And, and to discern with the teams and herself and with God which one of those teams she's eventually going to live with uh, in, early on in the next year indefinitely as she serves the people of Egypt. Now, Bethany's first encounter with Egypt wasn't just last month. It was actually started when you were 12 years old, right? Basically, yeah. yeah. 12 years old, Bethany gets the call, the impression, the desire, the heart, the passion, can't get Africa out of her mind. And early on in university, uh, Bethany has an opportunity to do an exchange program for three months, and so she goes to Alexandria? I was in Cairo at that time. Cairo at that time. And she found out quickly, this isn't the Africa that I imagined. This is like the Middle East. But at the same time, Bethany gets this real heart for the people of Egypt. So she comes home, and then she does something absolutely crazy. Um, you can see she's white and young, and she just goes to Egypt one day. <laughs> like she just moved to Egypt for like two years and takes like a three-month uh, TESOL course and learns some Arabic, and then she shows up in Cairo at a hostel, and God provides an apartment and work. And then you came back after that trip, and uh, now you're staging yourself to get ready to go again. So, I think to many of us, like, I see your eyes glazed over already. Like, are you serious, Chris? This is the cliche, girl from America gets called to Africa and goes to Africa. And <laughs> I think to be honest, you know, we kind of hear that a little bit too much, but I have a reason for asking Bethany some things. So how is it that you knew you were supposed to go? A couple people have asked me this question because it's always kind of the big question what God's will is. Um, I think for me, it just comes down to basically I'm the most indecisive person in the world. Um, and with things like going to Egypt, it was just one day kind of I had this idea in my mind like, oh, I should go back to Egypt. Okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and just this really strong, deep conviction that, okay, this is the right way to go. Um, yeah. Well, what about the lightning bolts? Is <laughs> there any of that? No. Was there a burning bush? Come. No, no vision, no audible voice. Okay. Yeah, All right. just, just God. So what... What did you learn? I mean, the first stint was three months. Then two years, like completely on no exchange program. You just went for two years. What are some of the things that, that you experienced with, with, with God as you stepped out like that? Because you didn't know. I mean, you had this sense you're supposed to go, and then you show up, and what happens? Yeah. I think one of the main things that I learned is that even when God calls you to a place, um, that doesn't mean it's a piece of cake, and it's, mm. it's not always easy. Um, but that through it all, he is so faithful. And even just, um, yeah, like Chris said, I landed in Cairo and I was like, oh, now I'm here. I don't have a place to live. I don't have a job. I have about $1,000 in my bank account. I'm like, what am I doing? I don't know anybody. Um, but even through that, God was just so faithful providing means to a house and a job within that first week. Um, and then just slowly building up relationships from there. Um, and I think a big part of it, too, is just learning that. You know, Egyptians are 90% Muslim, which makes them quite a bit different from us. But they're just people, too. And they just 
live their lives. They have questions about what school to send their kids to and, you know, stuff like that. Okay. So, yeah. So you, you, know, you feel this sense and then you, you went, for lack of a better term, I guess, in relationship or sorry, you, you said, I will go. And then God provides some means for you. But also tell me, a little, you said it's not easy. It wasn't easy. So sometimes I think I get duped and think, oh, God called me into something. He's just going to pave the way. And if I meet resistance, I must not be called to something. How was that experience for you? What was some of the resistance that you met? Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think he absolutely does pave the way and go before us. Um, but that doesn't always mean that he paves it smoothly. Okay. Um, and that when he calls us, he calls us to something that expands his kingdom, but that also that expands ourselves. Hmm. Um, and many times when I tell people that I lived in Egypt for two years, they're kind of like, oh, that's exciting. That's exotic and um, kind of crazy. Um, what people don't realize is that Cairo is a city of 20 million people. There's garbage on the streets. It's loud. It's crowded. It's like living in downtown Cairo is equivalent to smoking two packs of cigarettes a day just because of the pollution. Hmm. So it's not a fun place to live at all. Um, yeah, and part of the draining side of Cairo is also just um, culturally, appearance is very important. So what you wear, how you act, what you say, everything kind of goes either for or against you. Um, so I think one of the hard parts about me moving over there as a single woman um, was that I didn't just move to a place and start with a clean slate. Um, I moved to a place and kind of started with negative 20 points. Hmm. Um, just because culturally wise, if you're not married, you don't leave your family. Okay. Um, so yeah. you don't get to just roll in a Boundary Bay hoodie and shorts? Right. Okay. Yeah. So every time I left my apartment, I had to be covered to my ankles and to my elbows. Um, even when it's 100 degrees out, mm -hmm. and yeah, and you okay. still, people still stare at you all the time. They make criticisms of you and mm -hmm. critique you right to your face, and it's mm -hmm. just like, oh, I can hear you. I can understand you. <laughs> um, once I got to a level of Arabic where I could understand more of what they were saying, that was a little bit more obvious. Um, yeah. So, not easy, but yeah, what are you most passionate about as you look forward to going back? I think, um, especially in this, this time right now, Egypt has been, in case you don't know, Egypt went through a revolution. January 25th, 2011 was kind of the start of it. Um, so they have a whole new government, um, just a time of chaos that they're kind of coming off of. Um, but despite that all, God is just doing some amazing things over there. And I'm so excited to go join him. Um, the church over there has been kind of in a survival mode. I'm just kind of sleeping and trying to stay alive. Um, but now they're waking up, and it's, it's just amazing to see. And even hearing from um, leaders in the Egyptian church just saying, if we actually want to stay in this country, we have to get out of our church buildings and go and engage the culture and engage our neighbors um, and be a part of that. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about uh, the deep focus on prayer that the Egyptian um, believers have. Um, and I'm really excited to go and meet women over there who just need a friend. Um, being a foreigner, you're a really safe person for them to talk to because they can't talk to their family or friends about some things that would bring dishonor on them. So I usually get a lot of good stories. Yeah. And, 
they open up quite easily. Great. So again, just to when you sense your passion about this and you've seen it before and you're, you're still going into a team you don't know, um, what scares you about this next phase? I mean, you're doing something new that you haven't done before exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I've been thinking about this question and trying to come up with a good answer because um, through this whole process, God has just taken away all fear. So I'm... Good. I know it sounds kind of cliche, but I'm not really scared of anything. Um, I know there's uncertainties as far as politically, economically. Um, if you're a foreigner, your visa's situation has been getting a lot more tighter. Um, but uncertainty isn't always bad. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and just even like the story today, like the songs today, God is faithful and he's not going to call you anywhere that's outside of his hand. Um, so he's going to be there and yeah. Mm -hmm. He'll prepare the way. Thank you so much for sharing with us. And we really look forward to walking with Bethany in this process. And yeah, we're going to become stronger with these examples as well. So thank you, Bethany. Thank Appreciate you. it. <clears throat> well, I think one of the reasons I wanted to interview Bethany is because even though her story sounds kind of cliche on the outside, American girl going to Africa, underneath it's really the same for each of us. Uh, few of us get burning bush experiences or lightning bolts, or if we do get lightning bolts, we don't consider them good. Uh, and, and I think we want to play it safe with our lives. Uh, we want writing on the wall, make it obvious, but sometimes it takes just stepping out that one first time in order for God then to show us, yeah, I'm in this thing. It, it takes that step of courage and faith to get going. Sometimes in, in the church, for example, I don't know in your church experience, but in mine, uh, I went to one that seemed like they were trying out a new spiritual gifts test every other year. Like, oh, here's the new one that has like 57,000 gifts and it'll show you exactly what you're wired to do. And but, you know, those things can all be really useful. But what I found is that when... When you get a sense that you want to engage in a specific ministry for God and you step out on that, you'll know real quick if you're gifted or not. And maybe, maybe that's the only way you can really know if you're gifted in that area. It's just stepping out in faith for the first time. One of the other things I love about Bethany's story is that her response in saying, I will go, is not necessarily about going to Egypt. I mean, sure, in her case, she actually is going to Egypt. She's going halfway around the world. But she's on a journey with Jesus to be more like Jesus. And that's the main part of her story. For her, it involves moving away. But sometimes journeying with Jesus, saying, I will go, can take place right in your own backyard. For me, at this stage in my life, Saying, I will go, means saying, I will stay put. In our first eight years of marriage, we've been married 15 years now, in our first eight years, we moved 10 different houses. And part of that was being in the Coast Guard and moving around and just having that being out of my control. But there's a sense to where that change of scenery for me was really refreshing. You know, Corey was born uh, and, and always wanted to be kind of a homebody, to have that house on the corner, kind of like we have now, uh, where, you know, neighbors would want to come, where it would be a place of hospitality. But I had this 
I actually liked moving around in the change of pace. And partly God showed me I I have a real issue with intimacy. And you know, when you're in a town or you're in a place for three to five years, that's about when you run out your welcome and people get to know who you really are. And you're not so special anymore. And, oh, it's just time to go again. It's, it's easier to, to move around sometimes for a personality like mine. But when we moved to Bellingham in 2004, God really put a change in my heart, really challenged me on that issue. And gave me grace, gave me a call to where saying, I will go, means I will stay and plant roots. And I started to have these really fond memories of when I was a kid. And I remember growing up in uh, the church I went to with my parents. But it was specifically a few couples that every summer from uh, couples from church, they were friends of my parents. And we would all go camping together. And I would remember kind of growing up in community and seeing Rick, who was an elder at our church. But he was also Rick, who was Becca and Beth's dad. And... He was just a normal guy who had a beer every once in a while and played pinnacle with my parents and poked fun at them. I loved seeing them do that, you know. And, and I got to see real people, real Christian people in community. And I thought, you know, I really want that for my kids. I want rootedness in place. I want to invest in a neighborhood, in a city, in, in, in families. Sometimes saying, I will go, means I will stay. Sometimes saying, I will go, refers to an interior journey as much as it is a geographical journey. You know, many of the mystics and the spiritual writers, uh, the great ones, talk of an interior traveling, an interior journeying. And many of us have deep wounds and scars on the inside. And we mask those things. We can mask them with anger. Substance abuse with anxiety, any kind of destructive behavior. Saying I will go at some point means that Jesus is going to want to deal with those wounds. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to hide the elephant in the room. He died on the cross and he faced death head on and he rose to bring new life. And when new life comes, that means the old life has to die. And that can be very painful. So whether following Jesus takes you far away or causes you to plant roots in one place, I will go also means I will grow. Part of the good news of Jesus is that he's recreating us into his image. All the pain and challenges of the journey can help shape us into his image if we're willing to face them. I believe Jesus is calling each of us to follow. And too often we've taken his call to follow simply to mean to believe. We say that again. Too often I think we've taken Jesus' call, follow me, to mean believe in me. Believe, I don't know, in the Bible or believe in these doctrines or believe that Jesus really was alive and then really was killed and then really was resurrected. Believe. But following Jesus is so much more than what we think about Jesus. It's a challenging and a satisfying adventure that lasts our whole life. So where is he leading you? Where's he leading you? For some, 
it may be belief for the first time. Praise God. That might be what's going on. For some, it might be a career move. It might be a change of perspective with your current vocation. Just that change. Who am I doing this for anyway? For some, it might be journeying inside and addressing some of those dark areas, some of those painful sores on the inside. And if that's so, I want you to know that I'm here to listen to you and to help point you in the right direction. There's so many amazing resources in this congregation and in our community. But that's what journeying together is about. For some, I will go means being more intentional about your relationship with Christ. What is your plan for being more Christ-like? Dallas Whaler likes to say, following Jesus is about training, not trying. Like, I could go try and run a race. Like, I could try and keep up with Kevin in his next marathon. That's not going to happen unless I train. Similar, similar thing with Jesus. Do we have, are we training? Do we have a plan? I know that doesn't sound spiritual. But neither is osmosis. To each of us, I ask with reference to Jesus then. Will you follow this man?